Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my able co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Simon Beckerman. Simon is the founder of Depop, a peer-to-peer social shopping app for creatives, which boasts over 10 million members and $43 million in funding to date. Simon started out in design and publishing. He created innovative sunglass brand Retro Superfuture, an experience which included an interesting collaboration with Kanye West. He also spent 10 years running Pig, one of the most influential independent magazines in Italy, and credits his experience there as one of the driving forces behind his idea for Depop. Simon is a product genius and draws upon the work of not only business people, but also architects, artists and philosophers as he strives for mastery with a Depop product. So without further ado, we bring you Simon Beckerman. Hello, everybody. We are joined by Anglo-Italian entrepreneur Simon Beckerman today. Simon, Hi. thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, we live in hope that hopefully you'll turn the fortunes of Ollie's and mine fashion sense around <laughs> at the end of this discussion. But you've had what I call a renaissance trajectory into entrepreneurship in that you were a student of industrial design who dropped out to pursue other things. So can you take us back to your early education and, and life and what led you to come and form Depop? Sure. I've always been passionate about art and design uh, since I was a young boy, a kid. And I grew up drawing cars and motorbikes. And uh, at a certain point, I also started drawing boats and also even all sorts of electronic stuff. Um, in the 80s, my dream was to either become a designer for electronic uh, electronics. Uh, I used to draw a lot of Sony Walkmans. I was super passionate about them or even electric cars, actually, which was a funny thing because Mm. in the 80s, everybody had supercar posters in their walls. And I was drawing like um, city, small city electric cars. Mm. Way ahead of the curve, way ahead of the curve. (laughs) (laughs) And do you think some of that influence of of fast cars and the love of that culture was growing up in Italy? Yeah, well, uh, Italy has a big culture in cars. There's this area near Modena, which they call the Motor Valley, where there's the um, most famous car companies like Ferrari, Maserati, etc. Balsamic vinegar as well. Yeah, true, true. (laughs) And tortellini. Really? Yeah. (laughs) It's a very uh, particular area because there's food and cars. Yeah. 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 And so in that area, and even a bit, uh, even close to it in a city uh, called Parma, where my mom comes from, uh, when we were kids, we used to build little... Uh, cars made of pieces of wood with skateboard wheels and go down slopes with them. Mm-hmm. No? Oh, cool. Yeah. Do you ever hurt yourself doing that? Mm, don't think so. Maybe uh, I scratched maybe, my knees or... Maybe you just made them well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I ask what got you into electric cars at that age? At the time, there were these very first experiments by designers like Pininfarina, Giugiaro, and these, these famous Italian uh, design studios who uh, were experimenting with concept cars and I remember seeing the first electric panda in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And they never sold because prob- I can't remember the exact reasons, but I guess batteries weren't very efficient and they weren't very fast. But I was always, don't know exactly for what reason, but I was always fascinated by these 
futuristic concepts. Uh, so yeah. When that that whole interest led you to go and pursue industrial design, and presumably not to your satisfaction. So yeah. <laughs> well, m- my dream has always been to do uh, to open a design studio from the teen uh, years. Mm-hmm. For one reason or another, I always found uh, things that got in the middle of it, new ideas that made me say, okay, let me try this, and then I can do the design studio later. For example, one of those things uh, was a magazine that we used to do called uh, Pig, which is a funny name. It meant people in group. Mm -hmm. And another thing was a sunglasses company, which uh, both of these companies I did with my brother. Mm -hmm. And another one is Depop. So... I don't know. I started industrial design because I wanted to become a designer. Uh, unfortunately, I had to stop not because of any other reason than uh, I needed to work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that with Italian university courses, there's a sort of open-ended timescale to it? And so there's no, like, <laughs> there's no deadline pressure because you can actually spend forever studying if you want to. Practically, yes. Right. In theory, no. Right. It's, you should finish it within a uh, reasonable amount of 20 years. 20 years. <laughs> and, and so did the, the design for the, for the um, uh, super, what's it called, super retro? Retro super future. Retro super, yeah. super future. Um, did the design for them initially come out of, were you, was it something you, a squiggle um, on your course that you um, thought was worth? Not at school, but sunglasses was also one of the things that I liked to draw when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I remember drawing all these crazy Ray-Bans in, uh, uh, also in the, in the mid-80s when I was 10, 12, 13. Mm. And so it was a bit more natural for me to draw sunglasses. Easier to make than a car as well, especially an electric car. Easier, <laughs> yeah. I still have that dream though. <laughs> and, and with um, Retro Super Future, had you spotted a, what you thought was a gap in the market or was it just, I have this design, I'm going to run with it and see what happens? Because it's, it's, still, it's still going now, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very mm. well, yeah, yeah. So we used to uh, work at the magazine at the time, and a couple of our stylists used to buy uh, used color sunglasses from the 80s and use them either themselves or in fashion shootings. And nobody was wearing at the time, this was 2004 to 2006, nobody was wearing at the time colored sunglasses. They were all black or white or tortoise color, mm-hmm. if that's the mm-hmm. name in, in English. Uh, right? Turtle shell. Yeah. Turtle shell, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. So when we did the magazine, we used to participate every year to this trade show in Berlin and in uh, Barcelona called Bread and Butter. And we had a booth as a media partner. Uh, all the other companies that were there were uh, fashion companies. Uh, selling their latest collection of clothes, basically. And one day my brother was looking around and he he asked Sean, who is one of the guys who worked with us at the magazine, if there was any brand at Bread and Butter that was selling sunglasses like the ones he was buying from flea markets. Mm. And the answer was no. So we started looking around and nobody was doing colored sunglasses. There was only one brand in Australia called Tsubi. And another brand in, in the US called Linda Farrow, very famous and very nice mm-hmm. uh, designs. But that's it. So no, no big brand was doing it. Not Ray-Ban, not Oakley, not uh, the fashion, Italian fashion companies from Prada to Dolce Gabbana, mm. you know. So my brother had this idea, why don't we do them? Mm. <laughs> no, we live in Milan. Three hours from Milan is uh, the area where all the uh, best sunglasses in the world are made. So that's how we did them. We did. We produced uh, six samples, 
they were all transparent, but we painted them. <laughs> really? <laughs> and we started wearing them uh, at uh, parties in the evening. Yeah. Uh, working at, uh, at a magazine, we used to go to a lot of events. So in, just to give you an example, in 10 years we've been doing the magazine, I can, the, the, the evenings I've been at home were very, very few. Really? We <laughs> used to go out, uh, we used to finish work and go to some sort of presentation or event or concert where we were partners. So we, we used to carry these sunglasses with us on our heads and uh, people stopped us in the streets. It was crazy. And so that's when we realized that we, we had something that could potentially be, be big. Mm -hmm. And so we produced, a f we made the first production, we found a distributor, and we started seeding them to influencers, musicians. Uh, as I said, we were backstage in concerts uh, with a magazine and we gave them to a lot of uh, musicians. They loved them, they started wearing them. We gave them to Daft Punk, Kanye mm, West. Way. Kanye West. Kanye West. He wore them in five videos, I think. Because yeah. there was a big phase of the, the the sunglasses with the bars across them. Do you remember the colored ones? Yeah, the shutter shades, yeah. Yeah, the shutter shades. Yeah. That um, was the same uh, the same uh, time, yeah. Really? Yeah. It's funny because they, they, sunglasses have definitely transcended functionality to become something of an envy symbol now. Yeah. Um, a question I had when we were preparing for the interview was, um, in our work raising money for startups, we've seen quite a lot of s emergent sunglasses brands now who are doing very well. Yeah. And it almost feels quite late to the party. So we've seen Qubits, Finley & Co, and stuff like that. Um, what do you think is happening with this sort of move to independent brand sunglasses? Is it because of the product's high margin or is it because there's genuinely gaps available? What do you? I think that it's, this is a good question and it touches many, many different fields, not only in sunglasses, but in fashion in general and even in many other fields from, I guess, food also is experiencing this phenomenon, which I think comes from the fact that because of the internet we are all interconnected in a in a different way than before and we have access to everything you know and also thanks to the internet we are able to create something and promote ourselves you no know? uh, not only because the internet reaches everyone but also because of the new platforms that are out there like social networks for mm -hmm. example so we are much more uh, we can it's much easier for us to build our brands no, and so th I think the new generations are growing up trying to um, they associate themselves more to individuals rather than big companies, mm. individuals and smaller companies, and so I think that's th that's the reason. Do you uh, feel like you tapped into that at an early stage by um, getting these influential people to wear those sunglasses back in the whenever it was eighties nineties, uh, even though the internet wasn't so prominent, there wasn't this sort of you know, social media connection, but by placing these products with these people, do you feel like you were, you know, get it like tapping into that? Well, uh, definitely, that has been one of the key uh, factors for the, for the success of the sunglasses. At the time, though, this was two thousand uh, end of two thousand and six, beginning two thousand and seven. There wasn't Instagram, for example, and mm -hmm. Facebook was very very early stage. You know, uh, Europe started to discover Facebook. I would say two thousand and six, mostly. You know, so. We tapped into influencers, even though we didn't call them like that at the time. We called them just artists, musicians, yeah. or actors. You know, yeah. there were there weren't any bloggers or vloggers or Instagrammers. You know, and we did it because we thought that by doing so, we would 
we would be able to get into the coolest shops in the world. Mm. So, for example, by having Kanye West wearing our sunglasses, we were able to uh, uh, distribute our sunglasses in some of the best stores in the world. And, for example, when you, when you have Colette selling your sunglasses and you pick up the phone and you call any other shop uh, and tell them, you know, are you interested in our sunglasses? Colette is selling them. Yeah. It's always a yes. Yeah. You know? So that was the main reason for us to go with celebrities. But then we started playing around with the Internet. For example, at the time there was Flickr. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you remember it. I yeah? remember Flickr. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did this album on Flickr uh, where we asked all of our clients, people who bought our sunglasses, to take a picture of themselves with our sunglasses and we would publish it on Flickr. So it seems a bit weird now, but at the time it was a really nice thing. Nobody was doing this. And yeah. having your face on the internet in someone else's website was, was cool. Yeah. No? So people send us a lot of pictures. But what's quite interesting about the color of it is I think if you wear the same set of tortoiseshell sunglasses, you simply feel like you're copying what the other person has. But if Kanye West has got some white ones, yeah. and I choose to express myself with pink ones or grey ones, I still have a bit of individuality while still following a style. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how successful is the company? How, how did that grow? Um, what continued to happen at Retro Super Future? The company is now run by my brother. Yep. Uh, I stepped out of it when I started doing Depop. Yep. The company has two flagship stores, one in LA and one in New York. I don't know the number of shops that carry them, but it's going very well. Yeah. Uh, just received a fund, uh, funding from uh, Red Circle, which is also a Depop investor, and they are the family fund of Renzo Rosso, the founder of Diesel Jeans. Wow. Yeah. And now they are looking into uh, expanding with many more stores. Do you still work with Kanye West? No. Can you even get hold of does him? Anyone, does anyone? Does anybody? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a funny story about. Kanye West um, I bet there is. <laughs> so he he fell completely fell in love with our sunglasses and he started wearing them everywhere and even in interviews I remember this interview he did for Vogue where he was asked to choose his top uh, five or ten best pieces in fashion and one of them was our sunglasses and he started to call us in the office uh, very often because he asked us if we wanted to help him out in building his own brand he was building this brand called pastel at the time Mm -hmm. uh, which has now become some sort of a myth there's this article on um, on complex that talks about the backstory of this uh, brand that never came to be and he was trying to do this brand together with a friend of his called uh, Virgil Abloh, who now is very famous because he's creative director of Louis Vuitton and also the founder of this uh, very nice brand called Off-White. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, Justin Bieber worth it. Yeah, all yeah. the kids now yeah. uh, line up to buy even yeah. Off-White yeah. things. Now, he's, he's very good. And uh, they were working together at the time and trying to build this... Uh, pastel brand and so he used to call us every other day <laughs> uh, Virgil used to take care of some of the of this and uh, we produced a lot of samples of these sunglasses and he made us do uh, wooden sunglasses mm. which at the time I don't recall anyone doing probably some experimental brand but he was very very forward thinking yeah. at the time Finley and Co made their name making their first few pairs as wooden sunglasses See? See? Yeah, <laughs> huge draw for them. Yeah, 
So uh, we still have a box full of uh, of those, which maybe one day we can sell on Depop. No? Yeah, you probably can. <laughs> For a fortune. Uh, depending yeah. on how spectacularly he exits the world, yeah. <laughs> and his legacy will define the price. Well, well, when the apotheosis happens, yeah. he floats <laughs> up into the clouds. If he becomes president, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I was thinking about the collaborative aspect, because I guess Nike has always done it with Air Jordan. That's been one of the most famous and long-lasting collaborations. And... I, I guess with Yeezys and stuff like that, it would have made a lot of sense. So with Kanye being as influential as he was and having the people around him to make it happen, is there any reason why you don't think it got more traction at that point in time? Uh, you mean his brand or our brand? His brand. His brand, a pastel, never came out because I think he was, at the time, too concentrated in his music. He was trying to juggle between his music, uh, his uh, tour, his concerts and all of this. And building a fashion brand is is complicated because especially if you're someone like Kanye who likes to take care of all the details and the design, you need to be there and visit factories and talk with the producers mm -hmm. and be there when the first pieces are out to check that everything is okay. It's very complicated. And I think he didn't realize that at the time, at least that's my guess. Uh, it, it, it faded naturally. And then he tried again uh, some years afterwards and then again. And lastly, uh, ultimately, he managed to do it with uh, Yeezy. Mm. And I think he done, he's done an, uh, an amazing job. Yeah. yeah. For our listeners, can, can you share some fundamentals of clothing production? Uh, no, not a huge <laughs> amount, but if there's any things that like, are critical mistakes, overlooking factory visits or something like that, if you've got any wisdom, I'd love to hear because we see a lot of clothing companies. I would say never estimate the time that it takes to produce a sample. That's the first thing. Doing a sample, with the sunglasses business, for example, you, the best thing is having a prototype machine in-house, like one of those 3D printers or, mm -hmm. or et cetera, because uh, you're able to design and test immediately you know otherwise you need to go back and forth with the factory and it takes you two or three months just to have a test so that's one thing i would suggest to have some sort of m uh, manual capabilities and some tools in-house to be able to produce uh, your own samples as quickly as you can and then uh, definitely have a factory as close as you can to your office because you're going to have to drive a lot mm. <laughs> or travel a lot and meet them because especially in Italy, they're not always as professional as you <laughs> as you think. Uh, the first company that produced sunglasses for us was very complicated to manage. I remember, I don't remember if it was my, my brother or my mum who helped us in many things in the companies, who picked up the phone and called them and the guy told my mum that if she could call them later because he was making pasta at the time. Oh <laughs> <laughs> he was cooking pasta. <laughs> And before we move on to talking about Depop, um, we've, you've mentioned the, the magazine in passing, um, but I think it had quite a, it was it was an important formative process for you in in what ultimately became Depop. I think I'm right in saying that. Yeah. Um, so maybe you could talk us through um, the magazine. Magazine has been the most important thing for us. It gave me the biggest lessons. Right. Because when you do a magazine, you basically work with so many people and so many companies on a daily basis. So you meet a lot of creative people and you meet a lot of companies. So you, you constantly learn from these people and you discover every day uh, new creatives, new artists. But also, on the other hand, you work a lot with companies who throw their marketing on you, basically, you know? Mm -hmm. So they don't only buy uh, ad pages, but they... Uh, especially with magazines like ours, where we were sort of 
trendsetters or influencers in the fashion world in Italy, they worked with us a lot on uh, advertorial campaigns. So they they asked us to produce fashion editorials or features. Uh, they invited us in uh, trips all across the world uh, to interview people. I interviewed uh, many people all around the world, including one of the most famous Nike designer called Tinker Hatfield, remember? He's the guy who designed uh, some of the best uh, early Jordans and Air Max. Wow. Yeah. So I learned how companies, these big companies, uh, do marketing and how uh, and m- most of those learnings we then uh, uh, took and used when we did the sunglasses business and Depop. So yeah, the magazine was really, really important for that. Mm-hmm. And at what point did you decide that you wanted to do not sunglasses, not the magazine, you wanted to do Depop? Our magazine was, uh, we were a small publisher. Keep in mind, uh, mid to end 2000s, 2005 to 2010, was a phase where everybody was moving very fast uh, on the internet. To digital, yeah. To digital. So there was a big crisis in print, but there wasn't still enough revenue on digital Mm. for small companies like ours. We were stuck in the middle. We didn't have enough money to be able to move on the digital properly, especially in Italy. Mm -hmm. And we weren't earning enough money to sustain ourselves to do the magazine. Big publishers like Condé Nast, uh, for example. Funny, last week we had um, Will Harris on and he was responsible for bringing Condé Nast into digital. Okay. Yeah, so he was talking us through how... He was screwing you over. (laughs) He was saying he was saying. Yeah, exactly the same time. He said it was exceptionally difficult to get Condé Nast into digital, and they were worrying about that problem. So I imagine, but they had shed loads of cash to resolve it. Yeah, yeah. Bigger companies were lucky on one side because they had enough money to be able to go through this phase. Mm. Unfortunate because their structures were so big that moving them into the new world was really complicated. Yeah. For, that, for us, that was definitely not a problem, but we didn't have the cash to be able to do it in the way we wanted to do. And we were quite slow, to be honest. We were having fun in doing the magazine. We were seeing all these blogs coming up, uh, also blogs from very uh, close friends to ours, like Heisenobiety, for example, or High Beast. Yeah. No, David and Jeff uh, and Peter from Heisenobiety, they're very good friends of mine. And we've seen them grow from zero to Mm. where they are now. Uh, They just got a big funding from Felix Capital here in London. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of were also quite slow in realizing that when you do print, it's a lot of fun and it's very prestigious still today. So you tend to think, we tended to think as the internet of something that we, yeah, we're gonna do it. But now let's continue to concentrate on the magazine because we need to make money uh, and the internet is not bringing money. So. I was trying to find a new and alternative way to uh, make money. And that's how Depop came came to be. I thought, we have all these creatives that create such amazing things, which we feature every day on the magazine, every month on the magazine. And the internet is not catering for them in the best way. Imagine stylists who collect and resell things in flea markets or small brands who do uh, very few pieces and these kind of realities which we were uh, uh, exposing if I can use this word Mm. through our magazine but they weren't making enough money or potentially could make much more money if somebody took care of them Mm. in some sort of way so I thought let's do a 
a marketplace where we can feature all these people and have them all in the same place. And people who read our magazine, as soon as they read about them, they can also go and buy from them. And at the same time, the same people can also exchange their things. We used to participate into this market in Milan, which was held every six months. And all of the these creatives and stylists uh, used to uh, gather in, in a showroom and sell all the coolest things. Mm-hmm. Not on the internet, not on eBay, but only physically in this place. And it was really nice because there were all these creative people meeting for two days and they were all friends and they all followed each other mm-hmm. in real life. We could go there and meet them and have a chat and discover all of these incredible things that we we could only see on the magazine and we could also buy them. So I said to myself, we can reproduce this in digital. And so I started drawing pencil and paper. Hmm. I wanted it to be mobile because I knew that mobile was gonna be, this was 2010. And so I started drawing and I looked at all the apps that were around at the time. Uh, Obviously Instagram was just starting. Mm -hmm. There was The Fancy, which was another app, which was really cool, still going on today. There was uh, Twitter, I remember looking at very much. And all these apps had something in particular. They had uh, more or less the same paradigm, the interface. Mm. They had a home feed where you could see what people were posting. They had an activity feed where you could see what the people you followed were doing. And you had a profile, you had private messaging, etc. So they were all exactly the same, basically. The look and feel was different, but the interface was the same for everyone. Even Pinterest today is the same. Mm. Facebook is the same. Mm. No? And so I remember thinking, the designer in me, <laughs> actually, there's this funny story. Well, I'll tell you this story later. Uh, I remember thinking at even Williams, he invented Blogger, which was this platform where everybody could blog. He didn't invent this paradigm of the chronological, home where you could have news with the latest on the top and the last one and the uh, oldest in the bottom but he popularized it and after that I remember seeing all of these portals starting to adopt this design like uh, Wired was one of the first online magazines this was 90s Mm. mid 90s late 90s and they started adopting this design and I thought what these apps are doing for mobile is what even Williams did for the internet, for the web. And so I, I bet that this design is going to be the design which will be the one that dictates everything in mobile in the next 10 years, mm. which ha- happened to be quite right. Spot on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you'd come up with Depop in 2013, I would have thought, well, go figure, a lot of the signals were appearing. But to yeah. spot that in 2010, especially a mobile-first strategy, yeah. um, I think is terrific. Yeah. And what was the funny story that you were going to come back to? I decided to go for mobile because initially I thought I was thinking of doing a website. But then I read this article on Gizmodo. I can't remember the title of it, but the subtitle or a, a bit of it talked about this thing which they called the incredible morphing machine. Mm. So basically, the story goes that in the early 80s, the leader of the Macintosh team, this guy called uh, uh, Jeff uh, Raskin, one of the early pioneers of uh, user interface design, and a guy who was part of the design of the team creating the first Macintosh together with Steve Jobs, he envisioned this machine, which he said was going to be a box with a with a touch screen where each app represented an object. So an example today, calculator, 
notepad, mm-hmm. uh, flashlight, radio, you know, all of these things. Calendar, yeah. Calendar. And he thought that he envisioned a, a, a world where we would all have these machines which were uh, bricks, n- nothing, if un- until you pressed that function and it became that object. So an iPhone, when you press the calculator, it, it's a calculator, mm-hmm. it's not a phone, it's mm-hmm. a calculator. Mm-hmm. When you press the, the torch, it becomes a torch. And the interface, at the time when the iPhone came out, they called it skeuomorphism, no? which was the, the name that they give to a sort of way of building interfaces which has a real-life sort of feeling. If you remember iOS before uh, iOS 7, every app looked had materials. The book, uh, the book app had, was made of wood. The calculator had buttons with shadows, etc. Yeah. 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 <laughs> What's that called? Skeuomorphism. It it relates to the. It means basically the technique of of designing interfaces in such a way that it reminds you of real objects, mm-hmm. and that was the objective of the Apple team when they did the first uh, iPhone. Mm. They wanted you to feel as if when you were using one of those apps, you were actually using that object. Mm. You know? and so I read this article uh, which talked about Jeff Raskin. And this incredible morphing machine, which unfortunately didn't come to life in in the eighties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, massive handsets, which would yeah, burn your ears if yeah. you spent too long listening to them. Yeah. But if you read um, uh, uh, Isaacson's book uh, about Steve Jobs, the biography, there's a little bit in there which talks about when Steve Jobs was kicked out of Apple in 2007, he's, he was, first first of all, he said uh, he was working on, he was investigating in this touchscreen technology in 85, 87, I can't remember. So he was already doing that. And he also said when he was kicked out of Apple that for 15 years, nobody would invent anything else because the world would go in the hands of Microsoft who didn't care about these things. So. One theory goes that if Steve Jobs had stayed at Apple, maybe we would have iPhones 10 years earlier. Mm. Who knows? Mm. Wow. Mm. <laughs> maybe. But it's th- this is a prime example of people seeing something and the technology simply not being up to standard. And it almost seems a coincidence that it's invented. But as you say, if they've been sitting on it since the 80s, it almost becomes obvious to them that once yeah. they can physically do it, yeah. um, that they would. Someone recently said, I can't remember who, but something around the fact that technology doesn't invent itself. We tend to believe that if we don't do anything, evolution will happen, technologically speaking. But that's not the truth. Somebody actually works behind the scenes to make things happen and to invent them. Mm. No, And so this little story about Steve Jobs already working on a pseudo touchscreen in 87 and then leaving Apple and nobody worked on it for 15 years could be an example of this. Well, so and sorry, to circle back, how and then how does that complete your story? So I read, actually, I can't remember if it was written in this article or somewhere else, that the founder, one of the founders of Pinterest is an architect. So I said, and then I read this book of Bruno Munari, who is one of my gurus. He's a designer and architect who died in 1998, which talks about the fact that every chair has been designed already Mm. so there's no point in designing more chairs (laughs) (laughs) and i thought okay since because i wanted to be a designer i said there's no point in designing chairs (laughs) designers or architects are starting to do apps apps are like objects Mm. let me try and do an app (laughs) let me see if as a designer i can do an app 
in thinking about doing an app, I thought, okay, let's start with the marketplace that I was thinking of doing with Depop. And so I put those two things together. Depop came out, basically. <laughs> and so how, would you summarize it? It's sort of in a nutshell as a, as a, sort of a, so, a social network for uh, in individual uh, designers and, uh, and buyers. It's a, mar- a marketplace. I would say... As of today, it's um, a marketplace for creatives. 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 And by creative, I don't mean someone who physically creates something. People who think out of the box. People who like to express themselves in new kind of ways and so think. It's like curators. Curators. Would, so would some people be legitimate curators of fashion in weird and wonderful ways who then can be followed and sell items that they... Yeah. So the brand yeah. of... For someone who's selling through Depop, their brand is not necessarily, well, it's, it's partly to do with the clothes they're selling, but it's also to do with them. Yes. And that's where the, mm. so, the social validation element ties yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. And so so they, they accrue followers and... So it, uh, think about uh, Instagram. In Instagram, there are people who post pictures of their lives for their friends and family to see. Like on Depop, there are people who post things that they want to sell because they need to make some money. Mm -hmm. But on Instagram, there are many, many people who, and that is what in a sort of way defines Instagram, uh, who like to express themselves through Instagram. Uh, They love to travel the world and take pictures in a more professional way. They like to um, show themselves, you know. Or a version of themselves, at least. Or a version, exactly. (laughs) Or a version of themselves. Depop is the same. Uh, The idea idea behind Depop is that we can democratize e-commerce or or marketplaces in such a way that each one of us can have their little shop in their pocket. And if you want, you can just use it to sell. But if, but you could also use it to create your wonderful little concept store mm. and use it to make some money whilst you also express yourself. Because I guess um, if I can influence somebody to make that purchase, however I curate that photo, that scene, that outfit, then I do deserve the remuneration of that sale, which was, we've seen a lot of people try and attack this market. And I'm surprised Pinterest hasn't maybe made more inroads into it than they might have done. I think Instagram, we discussed this earlier, can't because it, it is about a, a 360 lifestyle envy and they yes. can of course sell items, but if they just sold items in Instagram now, I think the model would, would break down a little bit. And, and I think that's exactly the reason why it doesn't work with Pinterest or Instagram. Yeah, it, you, you don't go on Instagram to buy. You can buy because maybe you see something appear in your feed which you might be interested in, but you don't go there to be inspired with the mindset that you might want to actually buy something. But it's not not the whole, you know, the influencer marketing has become a huge thing. Now brands are doing a lot of their marketing by reaching out and paying individuals. Like if, if you're a makeup cosmetics company and you ask, um, what's her name, is she a Kardashian or? Why not? Um, Gen- what, the, that's one, that's yeah. the one. Um, she is, she's not a Kardashian. She could be. She seems somehow affiliated she, to she them. Is, she, she is. is. Yeah, yeah, right. Bruce Jenner's lineage, <laughs> right. married to... But so if you get her to promote your makeup on Instagram, it would cost you an arm and leg, but... Yeah. The, but that's already the, let makeup into the discussion, whereas that's not... I mean, maybe that is part of Depop's remit, but if that's if it, if it moves out of fashion, then what do you do if I'm just selling Huel or something else, which mm. is Instagram's imperative to be the catch-all solution? Maybe it's the focus? Sorry, yeah, I am. Maybe, maybe. 
This whole Instagram marketing thing, luckily in some sort of way, it's not working as much as it used to work right. before. Saturation. Uh, I think it's, yeah, saturation, a, a bit of uh, young people now see what's going on and authenticity, you know? It's like when you open a magazine and you don't know whether what you're reading is paid for or not. You, know? you, read, you open a magazine and you see, uh, I don't know, new brand X thing in the news and then you turn page and there's the advertising for that magazine. Mm -hmm. Now, when we used to do the magazine, advertisers sometimes asked us, if we buy an ad page on your magazine, can you feature our thing in, you know, we call it church and state. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's not working as much as before. Yeah. And so you remember that um, physical marketplace that you described once every six months in, in Milan? Would you say that Depop is in some way a version of that digitalized? Um, and with that comes added advantages in that people can can build a following and gain gain a reputation and gain a credibility rather than just, you know, appearing once every six months and hoping that that people buy from them. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, one of the things that I always have in my mind, especially when I drew it initially, was trying to reproduce real life, uh, let's say the funnel, no? Mm. From when you uh, discover something that you want to buy to buying it. In real life, let's do an example. I wake up, sorry, I come home from school or work on a Friday. I dress up, go in a club or in a bar, I meet a friend. This friend happens to have a new pair of sneakers, luckily that day, which I like. I look at them and I say, oh, those, cool, those are cool. Where did I buy them? Where did you buy them? And he's like, oh, I bought them in Goodhood, in Shoreditch. I'm interested. I want to buy them. So I either have to go, I either have to wake up the day after and go to Goodhood or even wait for the end of the month when I get the salary. Let's say I have to in two or three days when I have time I go to Goodhood and buy them and maybe they don't even have my size and and then go home no all of this happened in days mm. with Depop I follow you you buy those shoes and instantly in the activity feed I see it I click on them I click on Goodhood mm. I buy them and everything happened in a minute or two yeah. this is the power no of social media mobile mm. and the internet in general the ability to take the real life paradigm and squash it into this uh, new and dimension and somehow you appear to have done a pretty good job of it I think no, you're I'd say so. t 10 million users yeah. um, uh, so where so where do you go from there what's the grand vision different uh, in many directions first of all uh, expanding in new countries where are you at the moment uh, Italy uh, UK and US with a little bit of other countries but we we're not concentrating on other countries at the moment we are trying to uh, uh, expand as best as we can in these three countries uh, with a focus on US and UK uh, as much as I love Italy, at the moment we need to focus on these two countries. Next countries, we have a list which we are investigating and analyzing uh, countries in Asia like Japan or South Korea, but also countries that are English speaking, mm. uh, Australia, Canada and uh, European countries too. So this is one thing that we are focusing on uh, at the moment in analyzing, uh, at least, for a mid to long term uh, yeah. future. Another one is, uh, as I've told you before, Depop uh, is born out of the magazine. Mm. So the idea is that Depop, Depop's long term vision is not for it to be a marketplace. Uh, I, I, 
we see Depop as a community, not as uh, a marketplace, <coughs> as a community of creative people. And as such, our goal is to help these creative people thrive by building tools for them. Uh, marketplace is one. The magazine at the time was another one. I couldn't continue to do the magazine for the reasons I explained to you before. Mm. So I decided to concentrate in doing the marketplace with the idea that at a certain point we could re-add the media component back in the in the mix. No. So long term, we see Depop as more of as a media company than as a just a marketplace. Uh, are there technological advances that you're concerned about or excited about or ones that you think you might have to um, take account of in your considerations? Short term, short or mid term, there are many. Machine learning is one, obviously, the ability to be able to suggest things that you might like, although we will always mix uh, editorial content in there. Uh, many different technologies like, there's one which I really like. Uh, it's not in the cards for now, but the ability to expand our APIs in in such a way that you can use Depop without opening the app, for example, searching for items within the operating system or chatting with people through iMessage or, you know, these kind of things. Oh, cool. Yeah. The app is only an interface, no? Uh, technically, uh, so there are so many ways that we can use our community's database to show you things in different places or form forms. The one which I'm most excited for the long term is virtual reality. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite long, yeah, yeah. but I'm super excited. I think about it every day and I can't wait until technology catches up yeah. so that we will be able to have actual devices which work properly and work for them. So what are you imagining specifically? Uh, uh, I imagine, have you, have you read a book called Ready Player One? Yeah, yeah, yeah I watched the film as well. Yeah, yeah. Great. What about, did you like the movie as much as the book? The book was way better. Yeah. They, I think they I changed so much about mm, the storyline. Yeah. But I felt visually entreated by the film. I me felt like it spoiled me yeah. Um, visually. Yeah. It would have been a disappointment if it hadn't, given, given the, the scope for, yeah. for colour and just sheer wackiness in the book. Yeah. But it, I mean, it raises serious questions about um, what existence you're traversing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great... A great book, great film. There's this book which I want to read by Jaron Lanier. He's oh, I listened to a podcast by him. I was talking. See, I talking about that <laughs> so before, weird. and I put it into our notes about yeah. um, the podcast. I actually Sam told Harris. him to take it out because it was irrelevant, <laughs> oh, and okay. I said it's not irrelevant. Digital humanism is very important. But I, I, I just <laughs> finished a book of his. Which one? The uh, long title, 10 Reasons to, to Quit Social Media. That one, yeah. Right. But I already bought another one of his, which is The Dawn of the New Everything. I think that's the exact title, which talks about virtual reality. You know how, you know that he is the guy who basically coined the term yeah. virtual reality. Yeah. Uh, that book might, might be very interesting, and I'm, I'm very curious to know his point of view on that. Mm. I think there's a design challenge with virtual reality at the moment that there's a limited scope of imagination and uses and I think we need to keep pushing forward. I think people kind of have lost that fad aspect of it and it's gone to the gaming industry again. But, you know, I think given time, um, there's a lot of interesting opportunities because we're already seeing companies that are working with AR and mobile to let you try on sneakers. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a bit rudimentary at the moment. It still yeah. seems quite clunky. It is quite clunky and it sort of floats around <laughs> your foot and occasionally misses it. 
I'm so sure that Apple is. You know how if you if you watch interviews by Tim Cook interviews, mm-hmm. he always tries to slip AR in some sort of way during the the discussion in a way that I always feel is a bit too much. So my my feeling is that they are working on on a headset or something. Obviously, rumors are all all over the place about that. But by working on it, they see things that we still don't see the potential of. Mm. And I do believe that virtual reality or mixed reality is going to be so incredible that it's going to blow our minds. Uh, obviously, there's going to be bad things about it, like the Internet itself. Mm-hmm. You know? But uh, that's, that excites me a lot. If in Depop's case, I don't know, if you read Ready Player One, you can imagine uh, a, pl- a Depop planet. <laughs> Where you go there and you can meet people and you can do shopping or chat or have a drink, <laughs> virtual drink at the mm-hmm. bar. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, a lot to imagine. I mean, so a story from today's proposal meeting at AIN, we had a project for uh, mixed reality uh, and it's a shooting game, I guess like Laser Quest, but your phone is your weapon. And it's not come out yet, but you can buy weapons, digital weapons with different you know, uh, abilities. One user has paid $22,000 ahead of the, the product even being released on digital goods in their app. That's a huge market. So Not, the, I mean, the digital virtual goods. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that's a nice aspect of Depop is hopefully he'll always get, be purchasing goods if you're trying them on. Because I felt there was a huge red You money to dress your avatar right. really well. And your avatar can be really fashionable yeah. while you're just a slob yeah exactly um yeah um there was a lot of stuff with digital fitting rooms around 2011 2010 a lot of people were trying to get work out your exact dimensions on some desktop so you could buy more goods but i think probably they were caught napping while you were actually finding the (sighs) solution people wanted which was mobile led commerce there's this company in japan i can't remember the name but they ship you with this sort of suit like haptic suit and they take all of your measurements and then you send it back mm. and then you can order stuff made tailored for you because they know know all of your measurements what happens after christmas uh, yeah, yeah good point uh, that's <laughs> i thought i thought about the same thing <laughs> you need to send that haptic suit back again yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so to i was going to say that we should shift from the sublime to the bit more mundane so you've raised um i think i'm right saying 40 40, 40 odd million for Depop? In euros, it's around 40 million. 40 million. And from some pretty um, pretty big um, investment companies, yeah. I think Balditor and Octopus. Um, do you have any stories that you can share, tips um, that people listening might be interested in hearing? So many. Yeah. <laughs> so did you start, um, before you got VC funding, your first VC funding, were you had you entered into talks with them such that they were tracking you or was it something you did retrospectively? Uh, no, I met uh, first VCs I met doing Depop. Mm-hmm. Funny thing is that before doing Depop, I didn't even know what a VC was. Right. Mm. Uh, it wasn't very into the, into the culture in Italy and the whole startup thing basically blew up uh, in, in, the f- in those years when we started Depop, 2012, uh, in Europe or mm-hmm. in Italy, even. I didn't know what a VC was. One interesting thing I, l- I learned is this. Um, in, in, in the years we've done Depop, we've done so many decks. <laughs> yeah. Pitches and decks and presentations and business plans and all these things. And, me- and I've seen so many from so many, some, from many small companies, 
I meet I meet a lot of young people who want to build companies who show me their decks just for an opinion and I'm, I see so many structured in 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 a way that they show there are so many articles online that teach you, teach you how to do it now the 10 rules on how to build a, a perfect deck or you can download the official original sequoia deck mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. with the empty data and you mm-hmm. can fill it up but in reality i i never th- saw any vc working in that way vcs are like us uh, i i always thought tell them your idea in the same way you would tell your mother <laughs> as a story mm. as a story um, many people have these amazing decks full of numbers and then one slide with a very rough screenshot of what they think is going to be mm. i started the opposite i designed all the app mm. i did a presentation with only the app slides and i run them through the whole app feature by feature explaining them how the app worked like when you ha- when you look at a keynote from a google or apple or you know and they show you how a, a product works mm-hmm. as if i was explaining to them how my product works because i i gave for granted that all of the rest they already know vcs when you show them your product they're already building the business plan in their head <laughs> they are machines you know very mm. smart people and they mm. have excels always running in their heads so you don't have to explain them potential markets or these kind of things they ask you these questions and you have to know the answers sure. but the best tip i could give is think about not the business you want to build but the product you are building which then is in turn is going to bring you the business business and growth and numbers and money they're all a consequence of you building a product which people use if you concentrate on building that product obviously then you prioritize the features or the things that you think are going to help you to grow faster yeah but always concentrating on building a product for the market that you aim to to target to product market fit no mm-hmm. that's the that's the key of everything yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. i think that's the secret that's a, a, a tip mm-hmm. I would <laughs> and on the pragmatic side once they're in there and they've parted with significant sums of money um and you are let's say on the creative side not this the number side how do you how do you jostle with that steer of their um desire for it to make returns and hit kpis versus your idea to keep the product true to let's say the original marketplaces in milan So that's a very hot topic every time you you build a company and you have uh, venture capital money. Everybody wishes to build a company and have hyper growth. That's a 0.00x% of companies, not even deep up. Uh, we are six years in. The, the level we reached now is uh, the level that Instagram reached in the first six months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, yeah. So luckily enough, we Twitter reached this in two or three years, but that's hypergrowth and you can't be always lucky to achieve hypergrowth but still you want to have fast growth uh, if you open a company in italy and you uh, you build a sunglasses brand you don't need funding you invest like we did 5 10000 build a, a sample collection and go to all the shops you know and ask them if they want to sell them and they take orders and with these orders you go to the bank you ask for money in advance you do the production and then you It's very simple and it takes you a year maybe to reach break even two years if you're good with a sunglasses brand it's a small amount of money it takes though 10 years to become a big brand or medium brand and 20 years to become a big fashion company mm-hmm. that all the world knows about it's a long term thing in tech companies 
you want to grow faster because especially when you have venture capital money because they don't have 20 years <laughs> mm. they have 10 if if you're lucky uh, so is there then a danger that you become the, your whole business then is then driven by the targets that you've kind of implicitly agreed with them in the last funding round and so then you you can't direct your business exactly where you want to go because you're trying to hit these targets, <laughs> these quarterly targets. Have you found that? I think a common misconception about VCs is that they want you, people may think that they sit in board meetings and they say, more money, <laughs> more growth. Obviously, if you ask them, I have asked, what's your goal? They will always ask, uh, answer more growth. But they, especially the ones we were lucky to have as investors mm. they're very experienced so they know what it needs to grow and it's not buying a billion dollars of uh, facebook advertising is create a situation where you, where your product has enough traction so that then you can uh, accelerate the growth now imagine <laughs> i use this funny stupid example imagine you open a restaurant and you hire a chef and this chef is either not so good or is still tweaking and finalizing the the menu but you want to launch and so so the so the food is not so good yet and you uh, hire a marketing agency a pr agency and you, and you invest hundreds of thousands to bring people to eat at your restaurant because you want to grow people get in they start eating food is not so good they go out they don't talk about you to anyone or or they also leave you bad reviews what happened uh, is that you thought you were going to accelerate growth but by doing so you accelerated failure no mm. you don't want to grow too fast sometimes this example was because you always need to cons keep in mind that your company is not a company that builds growth, <laughs> it builds a product. Mm. You're there to build, you're there to create good food so that people like it. Venture capitalists know that. The tension that happens with VCs usually is that you want a growth that is faster than your company can sustain, not only money-wise, but or platform-wise or tech-wise, but also brand-wise. You don't wanna push yourself too much because the more people you get in, if you get, too many people in too fast, you will incur into other problems like churn or bad retention mm -hmm. or you know in bad reviews. Mm -hmm. Internally and externally as well, because exactly. your staff can't buy into a culture they don't understand. Exactly. Um, so you have to keep this balance. It's very difficult. And the way you do it, I think, varies from company to company. Could I ask a question? Because yeah. I guess a driver of your growth are these amazing power sellers that are emerging. So um, to understand that, I've got two questions. One, how much of the 10 million user growth has come, you know, recently? Um, and two, uh, how much are some of these power sellers making on your platform, just to get an idea of how influential they can become? Uh, to answer your first question, uh, our growth has been quite gradual, I, must, I might say. We, are, we launched in the UK, uh, which I consider the official launch in summer 2013. The app started to pick up seriously in beginning to spring 2014. So it's been four years-ish, but I would say it's a classic hockey stick curve for us. Uh, not so steep, like hyper growth steep, but it, it's going up. From 2014, we had, when we started the, this growing faster, we had around 500,000, and then it grew steadily since then, with some ups and downs due to experiments we make, money we try to invest here and there. Mm -hmm. 
but I think it was steady. And presumably because of the social nature of it, you get network effects, and that's yeah. why you're speeding up. Yeah, it's a, a snowball effect. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. So Depop relies heavily on that. Uh, the US is growing, but it's growing very much slower than the UK has grown because it's such a big country. Mm. So it's uh, you need a big snowball. And culturally <laughs> quite different. Each state um, is culturally quite different from other ones Yeah, yeah. Uh, for any number of reasons. But that could be a, a massive market commercially in terms of the, the sales volume of product because yeah. they are very aggressive consumers. Yeah, we have an office in New York and one in Los Angeles because of these because of this reason. We consider major US cities as countries somehow, mm. no? Mm. So we adopt different tactics also for each city. So when I imagine Depop, I always think of um kind of vintage um slightly retro brands. And and I always think of that in particularly in relation to millennial Gen Z um demographic within the UK but imagine in the US that could be entirely different there's a totally different sort of subculture style um, even between states is that true yeah uh, one of the things about Depop that similarly to other um, market uh, sorry other apps social networks they are designed in such a way that the communities the community that you see when you use the app are shaped around your own okay. community. You follow certain amount, certain kind of people and your feed is certain style. With the personalized explore section, which we don't have yet, is the same. Instagram, the genius thing about Instagram is that in its simplicity, each Instagram is different for mm. each one of us. Yeah. You know, if you are passionate about watches, your <laughs> your explore section would be mm. only watches. But do you so, so so what you're saying is that there's room on Depop for any number of, of styles. Yeah. Irrespective of of um of, of person. Yeah, the US um, the US has many different styles in the same way that the UK or Italy. There are many in fashion there are so many subcultures, you know, yeah. from ghetto gothics to sea punks to sure. <laughs> and then you, and you, so your platform works for, for anyone. Fashion wise, yes. Uh, we do tend to concentrate on different specific ones like vintage nineties mm -hmm. yeah. or sneakers because we are trying to give deep up a sort of branded personality. Sure. But as soon as we have personalization this will slightly change a little bit. It's gonna be much more tailored for you. Cool. And so and then back to the the seller question. Yeah what what kind of sales volumes are, are people doing at the top end of Depop spectrum? Uh, numbers wise uh, we have uh, people that are even very young, like 18, who make upwards of 100 or even 150,000 pounds a year. Oh, on the wow, yeah. wow. Because yeah. that's, that's the, the, the difference. Is we spoke to somebody about Snap and all those influence they had, and they get paid by the brand. Snapchat. Yeah, Snap. It's, it's yeah. The millennials <laughs> right. are calling it Snap. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but some people, you know, there's not much. It's a bit unclear what you do with people just following you around during your day. But that, you know, you're, you're turning over as much as a pop-up stall or um, a small retail well, you have outlet. no overheads. And you have no overheads. Well, actually, that's a good... How do, do you charge people to, to, let, to list or on transactions? No, transactions, 10%, okay. yeah. There's a guy on Depop uh, who goes by the name of Hooked BHM. Mm -hmm. He started off selling uh, old stock sneakers on Depop. He's a genius because he, whilst everyone was reselling rare stuff mm. 
mm. like lining up for uh, out of Supreme to buy the limited edition. He found uh, these old stock sneakers which nobody wanted, bought them all and resold them on Depop for very cheap. And mm. they were very nice sneakers. Mm. I mean, not the limited edition one. So he made a lot of money on that. And now he's opening physical stores. No way. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And he's built up his own personal brand. He's yeah. got followers. He's got f- yeah, Smart. we've done we've done a couple of events with him. Or for another example, there's this uh girl sh- her profile is Z Vintage and she uh now works with us at Depop. Uh, she's part of the community team and she's a photographer. She did the f- pictures also of the campaign that we just ran in the underground. Oh and yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, the underground ones didn't have pictures, but it's the same campaign. She has an assistant <laughs> <laughs> for her store on Depot. Oh, my yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it her mum? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's inc- just amazing. It's so yeah. in- it, it, like so much ingenuity. Yeah, um, yeah. And I guess you're being rewarded for your, your creative eye or your style. Yeah. I guess our question, another one we had where we we're musing over the interview, was um, what what is the risk of sort of algorithmic homogenization of culture in the internet where people from all walks of life sort of blend into a sort of 21st century internet culture way of speaking. A prime example is the sort of SoundCloud rapper generation of people with face tattoos and a certain generic style. Do you, do you think a lot of people in Generation Z are sort of pooling into this category of, of social proof and validation? I think in general, because of the age they are in they are going through the phase in life where they need that and we all went through that no the the main thing about them is that they are becoming uh, uh, adults slowly and they're discovering themselves they they are learning how to uh, they're learning about the world they are learning how they want to express themselves and and so in history all generations of the, uh, at that age have had the same problem, no? Mm. In the 60s, people would line up out of record stores to buy the latest uh, album. Uh, now they line up out of Supreme to buy the latest Supreme stuff, no? But they, they still search for validation in some sort of way, uh, a form of self-expression, individuality. I think that the internet enables them to do that in, a, in many new and different ways. Uh, we are, for example, we are starting to see very young people taking pictures of the food they eat and posting them on Instagram, which is a good thing. Mm. Uh, as long as they eat it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good because they discover they, they are expressing themselves not only in what they buy, but also what they do, how they live. Travel, food, uh, sports. Instagram is very strong for these things, no? Mm. Uh, Body. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, Algorithms help you to discover these things. The risk of algorithms is that they, as we all know, they can be biased. Or they can can lead you to be biased. Mm. They trap you. They trap you, yeah. And that's a very dangerous thing, especially if you read that Jaron Lanier book. If you match this with the business model, which is based off of advertising. Yes. That's not a new thing. Uh, Condé Nast is the same. We always had this problem historically, church and state, no? When you read GQ, how do you know whether they've been paid or not? So this is a business model that carries on from, from the past. And so this is very, very dangerous. To be candid, I do not believe, uh, particularly like to adopt or to use companies that are free <laughs> in that sense. And I've... I've been on the other side of that doing the magazine, so I know how difficult it is. 
when you do a magazine and you rely on advertising to survive, how can you do it? How can you go in the office every day and think, oh no, I'm not gonna do what this client tells me to do and lose all this money that I could earn that is gonna pay for the food I have on my table. I mean, I don't think Zuckerberg has this problem now, mm, but mm. It, the company has this sort of problem somehow, I guess. There is no official solution yet, although Jaron mentions examples like Netflix uh, or Hulu. I can add Apple as, a, as a, another company that doesn't have that problem in some sort of way. But yeah, algorithms and this, these kind of business models are quite dangerous, I would say. I think the only way that we can solve this problem is, as, is that we as users uh, are aware of this and are disciplined in such a way that we don't give that too much weight. Yeah, I think yeah. unfortunately that's unlikely to happen. Um, yeah. How are we doing for time? Um, but that, that probably would be a good time for us to, to go into the dose section, which there has been some reference of some books already that you find um, engaging, relevant. Uh, so to give it some steer, could I please ask you for a design book that you value, uh, an entrepreneurial book if you've read one that you like, that, that you value, um, and maybe one about anything else of your choosing that you think are particularly engaging? Uh, Design-wise, I mentioned the, uh, a book about Bruno Munari. I can't remember which, there's one which is translate, translated in English. I think it's Design as Art. I love it. It's very nice. Quite a bit technical, but if you're a designer or passionate about design, I think that book is really interesting. Uh, business books or entrepreneurial books. One book which I consider a bit of a Bible is... Uh, high output management written by one of the founders of Intel uh, and he is uh, was also uh, one of the mentors of Steve Jobs and he teaches company he teaches how to basically build a company to scale in a very simple and natural way it's a book written in the I think in the 70s but it's it's a really good book uh, other books which I liked a lot Simon Sinek books are really nice mm. do you know him yep Starts with why. Starts with why. Leaders eat last. Those two books I definitely suggest. They don't teach you anything in particular, but they give they give you. They're so useful to understand the minds of the people, and so it touches many different areas, entrepreneurial wise, which which are very nice. I think uh, that's one one thing I've learned from listening to you is that you you were looking at when you came up with your ideas. You you were looking at you were reading some books. You were reading some posts. You were looking at the way other people were doing things, and it was that synthesis that brought you to the yeah. decisions that you led. Yeah. So I think that recommendation in itself that you just read, not necessarily with an objective in mind. You're just trying to absorb as many people's minds, stories. Yeah. Uh, biographies are really interesting, though. Right. Uh, read a bunch of those. Elon Musk, the Steve Jobs. The official one of Steve Jobs is good, but there are a couple of others which are nice. Insanely Great, that's the name of the book. And uh, that's a really good book. Uh, but biographies are really nice. The Shoe Dog biography of Phil Knight, no, Nike. Holly's right, though. It's, this, it's really nice just hearing the synthesis and just allowing it to work forward, which I guess is a very artistic, design-led yeah. way of thinking. And yeah. patient as well. It seems like everybody wants to do something yesterday and yeah. doesn't want to build stuff um, over time. Whilst you're doing all this, you're thinking and you're reading and you're running your your big impressive company how do you stay healthy do you make a, do you make a conscious effort so that you can be as productive as possible yes i'm 
I did start this new kind of diet six months ago as a test. But two years ago, actually, I gave up sugar right. completely. Oh, cool. Yeah. How's it, how's it been? Very good. Difficult. <laughs> yeah. I started watching these, thanks to Netflix, these documentaries around sugar, and I, and I learned how bad sugar is. Mm. You know, the sugar industry in general, mm -hmm. worse than tobacco, worse than, it's really bad. And it's huge. And I started in, uh, learning about how sugar affects your body, metabolism-wise, you know, and, and then I moved to the natural next step, which is carbs in general. So I started reading about ketogenic diets. Actually, funnily enough, I discovered about ketogenic diet by downloading this app called LifeSum. And I went through some questions and they told me, you need to do a ketogenic diet. So I told my girlfriend and she says, yeah, this is very, it's very popular now. So I started reading about it. And I learned that ketogenic diet, it revolves around this thing where your body metabolizes, takes, uh, creates energy from fat instead of sugar. So I, st I tested it and I learned that it's very good for working because it, it, it keeps you into a very flat level of energy all day long. You don't have spikes up and down, so you, you're not depressed, you're not tired, you're not all of these things. And it's been, it's been very, working for you. very, very good to a point that my friends now think I'm a bit crazy because I, I talk about it every day. <laughs> well, yeah, the problem is that, so I, I tried that and I, I don't know if I found the same effects, but I, but I believe that it can work for lots of people. Um, is that if you want to have a glass of wine or a pizza, it, that that knocks you out of ketosis, which is this, this, this state where your body's um, metabolizing ketones rather than glucose. And so it just seems so immoderate because you have to be so strict and otherwise you break yeah, it. Yeah, it's difficult and I'm not so strict. <laughs> mm. <laughs> no. I learned one thing though, both by reading and testing, that once you are used to this, it's very easy to get into this ketosis state and out of it very quickly within two or three days. Initially, they say it takes three weeks mm -hmm, to get in or out. Mm -hmm. But after a while, it's very simple. So I do eat occasionally pizza, pasta. Yeah. I'd be course, surprised if yeah, you didn't. A healthy uh, Italian man. Obviously. Yeah. But I learned that this is very useful for those moments when I need more energy and I'm very stressed and need to concentrate fundraising or working mm, hard. Mm. So I try to stay away from carbs during those periods right. no, knowing now that if I don't eat carbs, my body is going to is going to take my fat and yeah. use that for energy and it's 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 good yeah. it works i think they're even producing i think there's one coming out of uh, oxford which is actually weirdly it's only available in america but it was produced at oxford university and it's like a, an exogenous ketone drink <laughs> and you just take a shot it's like 16 quid or 16 dollars but it immediately puts you in ketosis oh. without having to do any of the fasting really or, or that's crazy um it's, go, it's going places, I think. That's weird. Yeah. But one other thing I discovered reading about this ketogenic diet is how it's healthy for when your body's intoxicated because you eat so many bad things, you know? Or for it, it taught me how to fast also. Mm. So now I try to fast. For example, if I eat a pizza in the evening mm -hmm. for 16 hours, I don't eat. Yeah. I 
feel so much better now. I, I lost uh, eight kilos since I started the keto ketogenic mm. diet or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. But I had lost already another eight kilos when I stopped sugar. So in total... 16 kilos. 16 kilos. I can't imagine you 16 kilos heavier. <laughs> well, yeah. When you go past 35 years old, your metabolism starts <laughs> to go slow. Yeah, don't. I turn 32 no. in two months. Okay. Well, you know how they say Mother Nature takes care of you until you are in a reproductive age and then doesn't care anymore and you slowly die. <laughs> it's, it's the long route to death. Yeah. 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 And, the, and the final quick fire question is, what's the, the best advice you've ever been given or, or the best advice you've given or received? This isn't an advice that I was given, but is a quote which I probably badly translated into English from this guy called Bruno Munari, who I mentioned twice mm-hmm. today which for me is the essence of what I do in, in, in everything, in the company, in the products that we design, in life in general. So it's a little phrase that I would love to read uh, for ahead, the yeah. listeners. It goes like this. To complicate is easy. To simplify is difficult. To complicate, you just need to add anything you want. Colors, shapes, actions, decorations, people, environments, full of things. Anyone is able to complicate. Few are able to simplify. Simplify means to remove, and to remove you need to know what to remove, like a sculptor does when hitting through the rock with a chisel to remove all the excess material. Theoretically, every rock has a beautiful sculpture inside, but how do you know where to stop removing without ruining the sculpture? By removing instead of adding means you understand the essence of things and communicate their essentialism. This process brings you out of time and fashion. Simplification is a symptom of intelligence. And as an ancient Chinese saying goes, what can't be said in a few words cannot be said in many. That's awesome. That's my philosophy of life. <laughs> it's one, do, do you meditate? I would love to, to, to try and learn, but I haven't yet. Because no. that just reminded me of this idea of mindfulness when you're sort of, you examine your own thoughts. Because I think people create so many problems for themselves just by, by conjuring them up in their mind. And this ability to pare back, to remove the, the, the rubbish that we all suffer from in our own minds. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd love to find the time to meditate yeah. a bit, yeah. That's, that's the first battle they always say with meditation. It's just <laughs> you're, you're one step in the right direction when you find the time to yeah. do it. Okay, yeah, um, so yeah, we, we like to end um, by asking you if, if there's anything you'd like to ask our listeners, something to help Depop, something to help you, conversations you want to have. Continue to write us as they do, as you do today, because we that's how we build a company by talking with everyone and knowing what they like and what they don't like and what they need mm-hmm. that definitely would be so just engage and participate in the community yeah use the app give feedback yeah that's what i would like to ask this has yeah. been yeah absolutely fascinating a really thank different you. spin on entrepreneurial <laughs> existence yeah i really really enjoyed thanks. it thanks so thank much. you so much i enjoyed so it too thank you if you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations we'd love to get your feedback our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, olioed at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening.
goodbye.